the war at Gethsemane. You know, I, um, I don't know if this has any pertinence to the sermon today, but uh, I remember, well, just last night we had an opportunity to, to go out to eat, and uh, we went to this uh, Chinese restaurant to eat, and, and the waitress brought us some fortune cookies. And we began reading those fortune cookies, and like a horoscope, they were kind of general, and, you know, it might, hey, that's really something I'm going through, or whatever it might be, or that sounds like a real nice saying. And I remember last night just saying, you know what, maybe we ought to go into the market for some depravity cookies. <laughs> you crack them open, and they say, we're in sinner, we're a sinner in need of grace. We once were lost, but now we're found. Or, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. You are broken and helpless without Christ. I don't know if they would fly off the shelves or not, but maybe for theologians they might. But there is a war going on today. The war is for not necessarily the souls of men, but for you and I as Christ followers to remain in Christ. What I mean by that is to have a healthy, vibrant relationship with our Lord. So there is a war, and I will submit to you today that the war is fought on bended knee. You'll see that in just a moment. A war is fought as we pray. Today should be an exciting time for us as Christ followers. As we survey the world around us and the landscape of the world is ever-changing. Sometimes it is uncertain, but it is a, an exciting time to be a child of the King. And my hope and my prayer is that it will not be long before the return of our Lord. I believe it is on the horizon. I believe it is closer today than it was yesterday. And in this hope of the return of our Lord comes, to, comes the reality that someone today that you know will slip out into eternity without knowing the Lord Jesus. And that should frighten us. It certainly should burden us. Now, I used that terminology, slipping out into eternity, and preachers frequently use that terminology, but slipping into eternity for a person that is lost is not an easy thing. Slipping into eternity, somebody dying without Christ will not have it easy. A person that is lost and undone without Christ will not slip into eternity, but will crash into it in all of its horror, and it will not be pleasant. And so there is an urgency for the church, and there is an urgency of making the name of Jesus known to all around us, and it is not simply just the job of the pastors or elders or even deacons. It is all of our responsibility. And so, 
we fervently pray for the lost, and then we put some feet to those prayers. And, and speaking of fervent prayer, our portion of Scripture today for us this morning is taken from Mark 14, 32 through 42, entitled The War at Gethsemane. I will ask you, if you will, with prayer on our heart and prayer on our mind and the lost on our mind and the lost on our heart, let's stand together as we read the precious Word of God. Do you believe the Word of God is infallible and inerrant and will speak to you today? Amen. Let's read. Verse 32, And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. Going out a little farther, he fell down on the ground and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for, for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not be entered into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and, and he prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to, to answer him. And he came the third time, and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It's enough. The hour has come. Son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of this word. To all heart and mind, you may please be seated. So far as we have seen so far, there is a display of the dullness and the shortcomings of the disciples into which many of us certainly can relate to dullness and shortcomings. And many times we see the disciples, quote unquote, quick to catch on, and other times a little headstrong and sometimes a little dull. And in every occasion, I think that we can see glimpses of our own life in the life of the disciples. Such is the case last Sunday when Peter, Simon Peter, was a little headstrong. And we saw from the Apostle Peter, he firmly stood on this, this proclamation that said that I will not deny you, Lord, I'll die with you if I have to. I am willing to die for, for you, Lord. And the, and the Lord quickly and kindly and boldly informed the, the apostle Peter in verse 30. He said to Jesus, uh, Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you would have denied me three times. And we, we know the narrative Peter ferociously denied the claims of the Lord and the disciples followed suit saying, if we must, all of us, we will, we will die with you, we will not deny you. One by one, simultaneously, after Simon Peter, they all said in, in proud proclamation, we will not deny you. And we know according to church history that every disciple saved Judas who died in his sin, and John, who died of old age, died a martyr's death. 
Throughout the pages of church history, we see how the disciples, each one lost their life for the proclamation of the gospel. So they will have a chance to die with the Lord Jesus over some time, but they will, they will all be scattered, as we saw last week as well. Peter was so headstrong and so full of, of himself that he missed what the Lord was teaching him, what the Lord was teaching him on humility and of the new covenant that is coming. He took the company of disciples and, and made their way to the Mount of Olives. And on the way to the Mount of Olives, they stopped at the Garden of Gethsemane and spent some time in prayer, kind of, set, kind of setting the precedence that no matter how busy life, life is for us, there's always time to stop and pray and seek the face of the Lord. On the way to the Mount of Olives, they stop here at the Garden of Gethsemane, spending some time in prayer. And today, my objective for us this morning is twofold. First, I want to bring out the importance of a healthy and vibrant prayer life. Now, I know there's so much more going on here than just having a successful, vibrant prayer life. We're talking about the King of Glory being pressed in the Garden. And I understand there's more going on. And secondly, I want to describe and investigate very briefly why Jesus asked the cup to be removed if indeed he is the God-man. What is the struggle? I think we get a glimpse of this, what Jesus said, that the spirit is willing and the flesh is weak. So let's begin. As I mentioned earlier, the battle is fought on bended knee. The battle is fought on bended knee. Much like sleep in the Bible is a euphemism for death, so is bending knee, a, let's call it euphemism for prayer. It is something that is synonymous with one bowing on their knees before God and doing battle on their knees in prayer. Now, I want to be clear. I will not purport that one must always pray on their knees. I'm not saying that it is the position of your knees, but the position of your heart humbled before God. Amen? Amen. It is fought on bended knee. You will not hear me say that you have to bow on your knees every time you pray or that you would even have to pray at a certain time of the day. As Daniel prayed three times a day, it's easy for me to say, you, unless you're praying three times a day, you're not spiritual. But you won't hear me say that. If Jesus is our example and our model for prayer, what do these verses teach us? I want you to realize that these verses are not simply about giving us an example of prayer, although it is good to look at Jesus as an example, but to show the tension between flesh and spirit. In verse 32, the Bible tells us that they went to Gethsemane and Jesus said, you sit here while I go and pray. How easy a command that sounds to be. And there are many things that are happening here. Some are out front and explicit, and others are implied in the text. The Lord Jesus knew many things about the future. He knew the hearts and minds of the, of the disciples and the scribes. He knew their motives. He knew, of the, he, he knew that he was going to die and be, and be, resur, and be resur, uh, resurrected. He knew things about the disciples, but then would pray for the removal of this cup of suffering. I also believe there's a bit of a, a play on words here, transpiring. 
If you have a study Bible, I don't know if you do, but if you were to look up right now the word Gethsemane, maybe you have a study Bible with you, I don't know, but if you were to look up the word Gethsemane in, let's say, a biblical dictionary, one that will examine the Hebrew, Aramaic, and the Greek language, you'll find that Gethsemane means oil press, olive oil that is. It is oil press. And I, I don't think it's a coincidence that this is the place where Jesus stopped. Oil pressed. I, I, I don't think it's a coincidence. Jesus stopped to pray, to be pressed down in the burden of prayer. To be pressed, much like the olives would be pressed to produce the oil, Jesus would be pressed in prayer. The garden was on the west side of the Mount of Olives, and it grew plentifully olives. And this is also where they were pressed at. So I don't think it's a coincidence that the Lord Jesus stopped here to pray. Likewise, this is where our Lord began to be pressed for our sins. He commands eight of his disciples the simple task to sit here and pray. And then the Bible says that he took Peter, James, and John and began to be greatly distressed, oppressed, and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here. Watch. Now, watch doesn't mean to watch out for enemies coming. This watching is to join Jesus in his agony. They are in earshot of the Lord praying, the inner three. They are to join in in some way in the agony of this prayer. They are not to watch for the enemy that is coming. They are to watch and to bear the agony with the Lord in some regard. Peter, James, and John are once again shown to be the inner three. And if you were to follow their lives after Pentecost, you will certainly see... Not necessarily why the Lord chose them, but you will see their life in an extraordinary way. All became ambassadors for the Lord Jesus. All came to preach the gospel and to, as he says, as the Lord, uh, as the Lord inspires in Acts 1.8, to take the gospel to the uttermost parts. Peter, James, and John certainly had part in this. They were ambassadors for the Lord Jesus. But here in the garden... Here in this spot, this is where the soldier's true grit is shown. You want to talk about a Christ follower who serves the Lord? The true grit of any Christ follower is found on bended knee. It is found on how much time they search the Lord's will. How much time they spend in prayer. I submit to you that a soldier of the Lord Jesus Christ, true grit is found in their prayer time and their, and their time before the Lord's seat. Uh, searching Him and seeking His face. See, people who are known for being uh, people of prayer are often called prayer warriors. And it is for a good reason. So Mark writes that Jesus was greatly distressed. And this is a word or phrase that is only found in the uh, Gospel of Mark and Mark's account. His great distress is the fact that the very weight and punishment of sin is coming upon Him. No doubt he is greatly distressed. It is coming upon him. He is distressed at the impending wrath of the Father on that sin. As the Bible tells us that he became sin who knew no sin. 
so that we could be the righteousness of God. He took our sin upon himself. No wonder he would be distressed as the wrath of the Father is soaked up upon the the Lord Jesus like like a sponge. No wonder he is distressed. He is distressed for the heavy and abundant weight that is pressed upon him, the sword of divine eternal justice, which was waved against him, the reality of the righteous law of God will be directed for him. No wonder he was distressed, and so should we over sin. And I wonder, when was the last time that we think of our fallenness and our bent towards sin, and how many times we are distressed when we think of all of those people that we know who are, who are not in Christ at all, and that one day they will crash into eternity and the horror and the terror that they will, that they will see. If the wrath of, of the Father, we, we can go all day and say, well, they're good people. And I know some good people who are, are just as lost as they can be. In the regards that they serve other people, they love their community, but are just as lost as they can be. Here, here, here's something that might be a little scary for us to think about. If the wrath of the Father did not glance over the Son, what makes you think that He will overlook those who are lost and unsaved and in their sins? You might say, preacher, that's harsh. Did I say that? Did you hear me say that in my own strength, in my own power? You think what I said is harsh? I want you to listen what Paul wrote in Romans 8 32, what we might call a theological treatise, Romans 8 32, that says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give up all things? Now, The context of this verse is focused on the everlasting love of God, saying, if God is for us, who can be against us? But if you look at the very beginning of that verse, that he did not spare his own son. He gave his own son for you and for the glory of God Almighty. This should bring us to a place of great burden and agony when we think of the lost. But the fact remains, many don't. Many don't. I think we've lost that burden somehow. We all have. See, Jesus' request was not a hard one. It it sounds very simple. Sit here while I go pray. But he wanted the disciples to share this burden as he prayed and, and for them to, to be on guard and pray. This is a spiritual war. There's a spiritual war going on here, the battlefield called Gethsemane. And it is a conflict between the nature of Christ, that being the tension between humanity and divinity. This is a reminder of the importance of our sin, praying and having people who will be in prayer for you. Let me ask you this. And we'll get a little bit deeper in the theology behind what happened in the garden. Do you have somebody that you pray for often? Do you have somebody that prays for you often? Do you have somebody that will have your back in prayer? 
who will implore of the Lord on your behalf. It is important to have people who will have your back in prayer. At the time, Jesus had 11 disciples and an inner three. Judas had already been gone. He is coming with the temple guard to arrest the Lord. So there is 11 and an inner three who could have been there with Jesus and agonized with Jesus in prayer. People, listen to me. We have a whole community of believers today. More than 11, amen? More than 11 people that will have our back in prayer. We have a whole community, a whole local body. There should be no one in this local body of believers who feels alone and isolated, and that responsibility goes for all of us. Now, he sets the tone for this upcoming prayer. The Bible says, going on a little further, he fell on the ground and he prayed. This is the point in the prayer where we begin to see the Lord Jesus pressed. If possible, he says, the hour might pass from him. We know that the Lord Jesus was pressed in prayer, much like the olive is pressed for the oil. We see the Lord Jesus pressed, and the Bible says that the agony of his prayer is shown as sweat falling to the ground, as great drops of blood. So we know that the Lord is agonizing. <laughs> the weight of sin is upcoming. The forecast for Calvary is right on the horizon. There is so much agony streaming from this episode. The ISV says, the International Standard Version of the Bible says, He fell to the ground and He kept praying that if it were possible, the hour might pass from Him. Do we capture the agony that the Lord went through? He began to pray and He kept on praying. Here is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, pleading that the hour might pass by and that the agony to come will be canceled. Not postponed, canceled. You talk about cancel culture today. Aren't you glad the Lord didn't cancel his appointment with Calvary? Aren't you glad the Lord didn't cancel his appointment and carried on through with his sovereign mission to cling to the cross as his passion? And so it is important that we pray and that prayer is a battlefield for all of us. 17th century theologian George Petter said this of prayer. He said, prayer is a duty and service which we owe to God and which we ought constantly to perform in obedience to His will, commanding it. Though otherwise we should reap no benefit by it to ourselves nor even obtain the things that we ask. Going into prayer... Knowing that God Almighty will answer that prayer, even though He is not obligated to answer that prayer, and not even looking for the thing to come to pass. It is simple obedience to pray and seek the Lord's face. Now, I believe in prayer, and I believe that God will answer prayer. I want, I want you to know, as I've already said, I'm not trying to sound legalistic when I speak about prayer. For instance, I'm not going to say something like, unless you pray three times a day, that, you're, that you, know, you won't be spiritual unless you do that, or, or something like, unless you spend three hours in prayer, you're not holy. And can you imagine three hours today in prayer in this fast-paced, moving world we live in? But I will issue this challenge to you. Not to be legalistic, 
but still issuing a challenge. When you think of the objects in your prayer, concerning the lost, are you brought to a place of brokenness? And I know that sometimes our prayers ought to be encouraging too. I believe there's a balance of encouragement and brokenness in prayer. I know that we must pray and seek to be worshipful in our prayers. When you think of all the measurable things that the Lord is doing, we have reason to rejoice when we pray, don't we? God is doing great things in the kingdom. Isn't he? God is doing good things, great things. But there is also simultaneously things to be broken over. Many of us, I don't think, spend enough time in prayer to even know that we prayed. And I raised my hand first under conviction of that. In our fast-paced and ever-moving world, it is vitally important to etch out some value and quality time for prayer. Now, I'm afraid that much of our lives are filled with prayerlessness. I came across a poem this past week. It was just simply entitled, Prayerlessness. And the author is unknown, an anonymous author, but I, I thought that it captured many of our lives. In fact, it convicted me as I read it, and so I want to share that with you this morning. The author of this poem says, I knelt to pray, but not for long. I had too much to do. I had to hurry and get to work, for bills would soon be due. So I knelt and said a hurried prayer and jumped up off my knees. My Christian duty was now done. My soul could rest at ease. All day long I had no time to spread a word of cheer. No time to speak of Christ to friends. They'd laugh at me, I'd fear. No time, no time, too much to do. That was my constant cry. And this was written in the 17th century. Imagine what this author would say today. And if Jesus is teaching us something about prayer, which I think he is, it certainly is seen on the battlefields of Gethsemane and will be felt in our lives. See, prayer is, is battle. If you don't believe that, pray when it's close to your bedtime. Pray when you're already a little heavy-eyed. Pray when you got a million things going on. And come back and tell me that prayer is not battle. There are a million things that are competing for our allegiance and for our time. My challenge is to etch out that time in fruitful and meaningful prayer. Secondly, the battle is between flesh and spirit. This is really where the battle begins as, as we are bowing on bended knee and the battle between flesh and spirit. I want you to hear the words of Jesus that, that he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Uh, for you. Uh, remove this cup from me. Yet not that I will, but your will. Now, Jesus uses this, this strange word, at least strange for us, this word Abba. And you might have heard people use that in their prayer life, Abba, Father. It is in reference to the Father. It would be like adding emphasis to demonstrate an urgency in his prayer. 
literally saying daddy father it's referring to his intimate relationship to the father saying my father my father it's like a proclamation my father my father an intimate relationship affirming the omnipotence of the of, of the father jesus then declares that all things are possible with you. Not my will, but yours. And how can this be if Jesus is divine? And we know that Jesus is indeed God. But how can this be that Jesus does not know the will of the Lord in this occasion? May I rewind you to chapter 13, where it is said that no man knows the hour of the coming of the Lord, only the Father. It is declared there that not even the Son knows the return of the Lord. Could it be that the Lord purposefully declared it, that He would not know these events, purposefully declared that, that the Son would not know these Events And as you can imagine, there has been volumes and volumes of ink that has been spread over this topic. We could at the very least, at the very base of it, say that there is a struggle here. There was a struggle between the humanity, the human element of the Lord Jesus and His divinity. Thus bringing to light the word that says, why is it so important that the Father would pour the wrath upon the Son. Why is it so important that the Son would be agonizing in prayer in the garden and say something like, may the cup pass from me? Why is it so important that Jesus' humanity be on display in Gethsemane? I think much of that can be answered in Hebrews 2 and 17 and 18 that says these words, Therefore, he, that is Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service of God to make propitiation for the sins of people. For because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. We have a sympathetic Savior. But it's more than just a sympathetic Savior here. He goes through the agony at Gethsemane for the point of suffering. It is the all-encompassing suffering of Christ in His humanity, suffering and being broken in the garden to being broken on the cross. It is part of His humanity. Now we might say that it was the human side And even in that, we come very close to to dancing the line of heresy by saying Jesus sighed as to separate. We do not want to separate the humanity and the divinity of Jesus. He is divine and human simultaneously. But we would say it is humanity in Christ that says, may this cup pass. From me, And the way that we put this in a concrete way to understand is this. Hopefully this will help you. That Jesus' humanity was put on display at Gethsemane when He asked the cup to pass from Him. But in this request, there is still found no sin. 
And it speaks to the submissiveness of Jesus to the will of God the Father. It speaks of our Lord Jesus' submissiveness to go to the cross. Aren't you glad for that? Then verse 37, And he came and he found them asleep. And he said to Simon Peter, He said to Peter, Simon, are, are you asleep? Could you not watch for one hour? Watch and pray that you might not enter into temptation. And here is really the rub for every single one of us. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Somebody say amen. After Jesus prayed in such agony, being pressed, he returns to find Simon asleep. In fact, Jesus calls out to Simon as a way of saying to Simon, not, he doesn't call out to Peter, he calls out to Simon in a way of saying, you have returned to your previous state. You have returned to the old man, Simon. You have returned to the way that you used to be. You, were, you once were a rock, now you have drifted. Now, if there was a statement in the verses that deserved an amen and a hearty amen, it was what Jesus said. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And that, my friends, is the story of every Christ follower. That that there will be a constant struggle with flesh and spirit until the day that we die. But how do we overcome it? How do we overcome this tension? I submit to you, Galatians 5.16, that says, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires or the lusts of the flesh. To be constantly abiding in Him. Every thought captured and captivated by our Lord. See, before we throw the disciples under the bus and say, how dare they fall asleep on the Lord Jesus, let's consider some things. They had a long and arduous day. They had a long and busy day, full of emotions and uncertainties. They heard the Lord forecast His death and, 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 and heard Him talk about somebody amongst them who was going to betray. And they, is it I? Is it I? And they, they, they all followed suit saying, is it me, Lord? Will it be me? They had a long and arduous day full of emotions and uncertainties. And now, at the end of the day, they are walking their way to the Mount of Olives and they stop at Gethsemane. So naturally they were tired, but the, what the Lord Jesus expects of them is just to give a little bit more. Give a little bit more time before his arrest, but they couldn't watch for one hour. And so there is a tension between the spirit and the willingness. We all, every Christ followers, we all, I hope, want to do the will of God. Amen. I hope that we all want to do and pursue Christ with every fiber. We all have it in our mind. If we are in Christ and we are regenerate, we want to be in God's will. Every one of us. And so the Spirit is willing. We want, we want to strive, as Paul said, to strive and pursue and, and, and to seek righteousness and to be sober-minded. We all want to be there. But then the flesh steps in. The old man steps in. And here are the disciples. They were naturally tired. And we don't want to throw them under the bus because we all have been in a similar place where the flesh has won the day. The flesh has won the day. When the Lord needed them the most, the flesh got the best of them. And oh, how many times 
People right here in our congregation need us in time of prayer. And instead of prayer, we might give them strife. And I will, I will be the first to say to you from the pulpit this morning as a pastor, I need encouragement. I need prayer. For all the many things that I might do wrong or slip at, I need your prayer. I need your encouragement. And I believe that Pastor Jason would say the same thing. Encourage on the things that are done well in ministry and encourage there. And pray. I will be the first to say, I need your prayer. And I know he would say the same thing to you. We need your prayer. We need your encouragement. There's an enemy, there's a devil that wants to separate and distract and distort the gospel. So I will say to you, please don't fall asleep on me. Pray for me. The Bible tells us in verse 39, and again, he went away and he prayed saying the same words. And again, he came and found them asleep. Their eyes were very heavy. They did not know what to answer. And he came a third time. Are you still asleep? Taking your rest. And there's an exclamation here. It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man has betrayed into the hands of sinners. An exclamation. Rise. Let us be gone. See, my betrayer is at hand. And we are... We're coming to the climactic scene in the gospel account, the part of the gospel that makes the gospel the gospel. The part of the gospel that makes the gospel the gospel. This is the part of the arrest of our Lord Jesus, the trial of the Lord Jesus, the beating of the Lord Jesus, the death and the resurrection of our Lord. It's the part that makes the gospel the gospel. The disciples were so tired or groggy, they did not even know how to respond to the Lord. You ever been that tired? I'll never forget this. I've been, I have been so tired before that my dad would wake me up on a Saturday to get ready for school and I would get up and get dressed and then look at the clock. Wait a minute, it's Saturday and it's 7.30 in the morning. And he would wake me up and I would jump up. I would put my clothes on groggy and then look at him and he would just be laughing at me. <laughs> the disciples were so tired. They didn't know how to respond. This is a way, I believe, also that Mark the Evangelist shows the authenticity and, of the gospel and the brokenness of humanity. We don't get a glimmering picture of the disciples. We get a broken one because that's how we all are. They were speechless. Think about it. The inner three, the disciples, they were present at the Mount of Transfiguration. They saw Jesus before he, was before he would be glorified. They saw a pre-glorified vision of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. A spectacular event to say the least. And if that would not put fuel in my evangelism, if that would not put fuel in my servitude to the Lord Jesus, I don't know what would. And now they are too sleepy to even acknowledge the Lord Jesus. And if I didn't know any better, <laughs> I would say that Mark knew me a little too well. The weakness of the flesh, it prevented the real sympathy with Jesus. Both their shame and their drowsiness would make them dull. The Lord knows us all too well, doesn't he? Knowing that Judas is coming with the temple guard, he calls for the disciples to wake up. And the ISV again captures the moment this way. Get up, let's go, see the one who is betraying me is is near. 
Now, this is not to say, and I want you to listen to this very carefully as I close. Now, that's not to say that Jesus intended to run to the hills or to the Mount of Olives to run from his arresters. That's not what this verse says. But rather, let us go to meet the arresting party. Jesus was not running from, but running to his accusers. And he did so for you, for me, and for the glory of the Father. What a wonderful thought that is. In times of war, the cost lay heavy upon the culture and society. In times of war, everyone in the world is affected in some way. It was often said that war, no matter how big or how small, has a global effect in some way. A few years ago, there was a Dutch professor and instructor who took some time to estimate the cost of a soldier's death in different times of war in history. He calculated that during the reign of Julius Caesar, the cost of taking an enemy soldier's life would have been about a dollar. Then he estimated the time of Napoleon. It jumped up to probably about $2,000 to take a death to to take the life of a soldier. By the close of World War I, it had increased several times over to $17,000. We know by the end of World War II, the research shows us that it had elevated to $40,000 to take the life of an enemy soldier. The costliness of war. The war in Vietnam during the 1970s to kill a Vietnamese uh, soldier cost the United States $200,000. And if we are to follow this trajectory through history, one can imagine the upward inflated cost of taking the life of a soldier today. So yes, war is very costly. War costs a culture. It costs the world, in fact, But nothing is as costly as what happened on the battlefield at Gethsemane. It is not as costly as what transpired there. I want you to think about it. Jesus will soon suffer and die, and he knew it was coming. Because of our sin, Jesus will die on the cruel and shameful cross. We can certainly relate to the fact that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Hear the words of the Apostle Paul as he wrote in Romans 17, uh, 7 verse 19. This should be everyone, on the tip of the tongue of every one of us here today. For I do not good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. How many have that struggle? I know what to do is right, but I don't do it. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. The spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. What do we learn from our Lord? We learn the power of prayer and to keep on praying and to be pressed in prayer and to agonize over our lost love and agonize in prayer and rejoice. Pray for those who are lost. Pray for your church. Pray for your community. Pray for believers to draw closer. Pray for revival. The war that we fight today will begin on bended knee. I will invite you in, a minute, in, a, in just a moment as we, as we begin to, to sing our song of invitation to begin to pray for someone lost today. Maybe you're here today and you're lost. And what I mean by that is you have never been forgiven of your sins by the Lord Jesus. You have never submitted to His Lordship ever. You have never prayed, Lord, forgive me of my sin. You have never 
you have never become a Christ follower. Your sins haven't been forgiven. Maybe that's you today. If that's you today, we would love to pray with you. We would love for you to submit to Christ today. Maybe you're here today and you've got somebody on your heart and mind that you need to agonize and pray over. I pray that you would do that today. Prayer is war. And we need to be on the battlefield. In just a moment, we'll sing, Jesus paid it all, page 305 in your hymnal. If you will, let's turn there. And let's stand as we prepare our hearts to sing this invitation. How has the Lord spoke to you this morning in His Word? Do you need to come to the altar to pray? Do you need to seek His face? Do you need to be broken in prayer? Let's sing together, Jesus paid it all.